Again, my name is Ben Skog. I, uh, I am the dean of Texas Baptist College, the, the undergraduate institution at Southwestern Seminary. And so I want to say thank you uh, for your support, both for the seminary and the college. We greatly appreciate it. And also, I want to say thank you for welcoming uh, me and my family. Uh, we joined this amazing church in late spring, and we have come to know you, we've come to love you, and we've come to be loved by you. And so I want to thank you for being who you are, that is loving and welcoming a church family. We greatly appreciate you. This morning, I'm going to ask something odd of you, and that is to open your Bible to two different places, one in the Old Testament and one in the New. So if you could put something in John chapter 10, we're going to be coming there towards the end of the sermon, but also put something in Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 34. So John 10 and Ezekiel 34. And as you're turning there, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions concerning the Gospel of John. The first is this. In John, there are classically seven I am statements. Seven I am statements. Uh, eight if you count Jesus saying I am the I am. But classically speaking, there are seven I am statements whereby Jesus says I am the and then he says something. Now, uh, in, in a second, I'm going to ask you if you can recall some of those I am statements. This would be the only response time in the sermon, right? This is not a charismatic service. I am not a charismatic pastor. So for the next 30 seconds, I welcome your feedback. So when Jesus says, I am the what? Give, give, me, give me one or a few of the I am statements that we're familiar with. Right. I am the bread of life, right? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Excellent. What else? All I heard was, <laughs> so we're going to assume that someone said, I am the light of the world. That's an excellent one. Uh, what else? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Excellent. What else? I am the good shepherd, the one we're going to cover today. And I think I heard the resurrection and the life. Uh, and I'm going to assume someone else said, I am the true vine. Now, these are the seven classic I am statements in the Gospel of John. First, let's clarify that these are absolutely and stunningly true. We hold to the inspiration of Scripture. We hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. We say that Scripture is authoritative and fully sufficient. So the next question I'm going to ask you is not chipping away or eroding at the truth of the statements. These are absolutely stunningly true. But here's the question. Are they literally true? Are they literally true? And here's what I mean. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, we know it's true, but is it literally true? Is Jesus saying to his audience and to us this morning, I am literally a loaf of bread with two end pieces? And by the way, no one eats the end pieces, do they? I, I think somewhere in Leviticus chapter 130, which there is not 130, but if there were, it would say something like, if anyone touches the end pieces, they are to be uh, unholy and unclean for at least a ritual time. Is Jesus saying, I am literally a loaf of bread with two end pieces and 14 pieces in the middle? No, of course not. He is the bread of life, but he's not a literal loaf of bread. In other words, it's an image that speaks stunning theological truth about Christ. When Jesus says, I am the door or the way or the gate, is he literally saying, I am a door with old rusty hinges on one side, and I have an old uh, turn handle to open the gate somewhere near my belly button? No, he is the door, but he's not a literal door. 
When Jesus says, I am the vine, the true vine, he is saying, I am the vine. There's truth behind that image, but he's not saying, I am a literal withered up vine that produces literal grapes. We understand that. Now, here's the thing. If these things are true, which they are, but they're not literally true, then where do we go to find meaning behind these I am statements? I'm afraid that sometimes uh, we, we, we take a little bit of license upon ourselves and we begin to, to, to answer the question like this, well, well, if it's not literally true, but it's true, we begin to say, well, here's what they mean to me. And we begin to fill in that information. We do this most usually in our small groups, unfortunately. We say, well, Jesus is, he's a vine in, in that he, he, I love grapes, and, and, and Jesus fills me up with grapes. Well, that, 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 that's not it, is it? Uh, uh, friends, you and I do not have the authority to add meaning. We shouldn't have the license to add meaning. And so if, if it's not up to us to find the meaning, where is the meaning? And the answer to all of these is found in the pages of the Old Testament. You see, Jesus is going back to the Old Testament, to passages, specific places in the Old Testament, and he's taking meaning there, and he's bringing those things forward so that when he says, I am the bread of life, do you know what he's actually saying? He's saying, go back to the book of Exodus, whereby God is sustaining miraculously from heaven bread or manna from heaven on a daily basis. He is miraculously and stunningly providing and sustaining his people. Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of manna. I am the true manna. Just as he says in John 6, I am the true bread that comes down from heaven, sent from the Father to sustain and provide for the people of God. When he says, I am the vine, you see, in the Old Testament, uh, one of the greatest symbols for God lavishing covenant blessing upon his people was the abundance and overflow of wine. So what Jesus is saying is, I am the second Adam. The, the, the first Adam brought in through his sin and transgression in the Garden of Eden, covenant curses. He brought in sin. He brought in death. He brought in sickness. He brought in iniquity and pestilence through his failure. Christ is saying, I am the second Adam. I am come to, to undo and eradicate all the covenant curses that the first Adam brought in. And I am here to lavish upon my people stunning covenant blessing. I am the true vine. All of that is in the Old Testament. Now, for the most part, we get that. But for some reason, sometimes when we come to Jesus in John chapter 10, saying both in verse 11 and in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. For some reason, we think all the other ones are true images that speak truth, but for some reason, we take that one as literal. We think for some reason Jesus is saying, I am a literal shepherd with a literal shepherd's crook with literal sheep. And I think we get this from the many paintings we've seen, the Kincaids, and, and I think the most famous one was actually done by a Mormon. And, and it's where Jesus has, has the little lamb wrapped around his neck, and he's got the shepherd's crook, and he's got little lambs dancing around him, kind of frolicking, right? And one of them has his head half turned, looking back at Jesus, and he and Jesus look as though the expressions on their face like they just shared in a personal joke, like they're in the middle of a laugh, like, ha, ha. And we think Jesus is saying, I am a literal shepherd. 
Friends, that's not what Jesus is saying. How do we know this? Well, one, we know his occupation, right? He was a carpenter. But two, notice the response in this passage. The enemies of Christ, the Jewish leaders in this passage, have two responses to Jesus. When he says, I am the good shepherd, if he were to say, I am a literal shepherd with literal sheep, his enemies would say, yes and amen. Do you know why? Because many scholars think that during this time, a shepherd was untrustworthy. And there are many reports that say that a shepherd was, their their word was not counted in a court of law. So in other words, they were not to be trusted. If Jesus were literally saying, I am a literal shepherd with literal sheep, they would have said, yes and amen. We can discount every word that he says. We don't have to hold it as truth. But notice the response. Two responses in this passage when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The first is in verse 20, and it says this. And there was a division amongst the Jews concerning Jesus. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed. He's nuts. He's crazy. That's the first one. The second is down in verse 31. They picked up stones in order to kill him. Why would there be two drastic, dastardly responses if Jesus were literally saying, I am announcing today I'm a literal shepherd with literal sheep? In other words, they know something we tend to forget. They understand through the imagery of good shepherd that he is saying something far more important about himself than I am a literal shepherd with literal sheep. They understand the image that's speaking. They understand what Jesus is saying about himself in his identity so much so that they pick up rocks in verse 31 in order to kill him because in his saying I am the good shepherd they say you are making yourself one with God. So the question is how do we get there? First, we need to go back to the pages of the Old Testament and remember that God has made many promises to his people concerning a very number of things, but one of the most important promises that he makes to his people is concerning kings. He has made promises from the very beginning portion of Genesis, and he has said to his people, I will give you kings. And these kings, theoretically, right, all of us who are created beings, created in the image of our God, uh, owe it to God to rightly reflect his glory back to him, which means in our conversations, in our actions, in our thoughts, we are supposed to reflect God's glory. His love should be seen in our love. His grace should be seen in our grace. His mercy should be seen in our mercy. But the leaders and the kings that he places over the people of God, even more so. These promises go back to Genesis chapter 16 when God promises Abraham, Abraham through you in verse 7. He said, will come forth many princes and kings. That promise gets passed down from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob. Jacob picks it up in two places in chapter 35 and then most familiar to us is Genesis 49. In Genesis 49, Jacob takes this promise of future kings. And he passes it down to his fourth son, Judah. He says in 49, verse 8 of Genesis, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. 
Your father's sons will bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. This promise of God placing a king over the top of his people to rightly live according to God's commandments and lead according to God's commandments. We understand in our study that Pastor Drew has been taking us through that the first king of Israel, his name is Saul. And, and as we remember from, from the, the sermons, from Pastor Drew's sermons, we remember that Saul is one who started off just, he started off well in war, but of course he was not a godly leader, was he? So much so that God removes the Holy Spirit from him, meaning God removes and strips the kingdom of Israel from him and places upon another. Who is that person? David. King David, who is the greatest king of Israel's history? King David. And, and by the way, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, there is a pillar in the Old Testament in which two things come together, the imagery of king and shepherd. King and shepherd. Here's what God says of David in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2. He says, and the Lord said to you, David, you will shepherd, did you hear this? You will shepherd my people Israel and you will be a ruler over Israel. In other words, he's saying to David this, in my sovereignty, I made you a literal shepherd with literal sheep. And there is a literal shepherd with literal sheep. Your job was to so love those sheep that when an enemy came, you wouldn't merely walk away, that you would stand in front of your sheep and in front of the enemy, whether it was a bear, whether it was a lion, and you would take on and take down that enemy. You would conquer the enemies of your sheep. When they were scattered, you knew to go and to look and to gather them. When they were hurt, you knew to go and find them and to, in gentleness, gather them together, bind them up and heal them. When they were sick, you nourished and nursed them back to health. And he says, David, in my sovereignty, that's what I made you, so that at this moment when I hand you the kingdom, you will know how to care for my people. They're not your people, David. They're my people. They're my sheep. And you are to live personally in obedience to me, and you are to lead in obedience to me. And here is another Old Testament truth. As the king goes, so goes the people. In other words, if you have a godly king, not only will God bless that king, but covenantally he will then shower the nation with covenant blessings. But where you have wicked kings, a king who lives in godlessness, lives in disobedience, then not only will God bring covenant curses upon that king, but he will bring them upon the entire nation. So two things we need to understand. One, as goes the king, so goes the nation. Two, from 2 Samuel chapter 5 and on, the authors of Scripture can refer to a king by calling him a shepherd. Now, Ezekiel 34, beginning in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, verse 2, Son of man, prophesy or speak or proclaim against the shepherds of Israel. Let us make a point here 
God is not speaking a word of warning and woe against literal shepherds. In this passage, wherever you see the word shepherd, you are to think king. And where you see the word sheep, you are to think the people of God. Let's go through this again. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds. Who? The wicked kings of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, say to those kings, thus says the Lord, and here's the word of woe, the word of warning that God has against all of the wicked and godless and disobedient kings who have come in Israel's past. He's saying, I am against you. I am against you, wicked kings. He says it here in verse 2. He says it down again in verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. I am against the wicked kings of Israel. And why, you ask? Here's the evidence, the the charges that God brings against these wicked kings in verses 2, part B, through verse 9. He says, woe, you shepherds, you kings of Israel. You have been feeding yourselves. You should have been feeding my flock, but you disregarded them. You fed yourselves. You were more concerned with yourself than the flock. Verse 3, you have eaten the fat and you clothe yourselves with wool. You have slaughtered the fat sheep, or you have slaughtered the fat without feeding the flock. You are so selfish that you use the position of king that I gave you to serve yourself rather than my people. Verse 4, Because of your actions, he says, the covenant curses fell upon you and fell upon my people. As the king goes, so goes the nation. Verse 4, and when they became sick through your failure in leadership, you did not strengthen. The diseased, you did not heal. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, You have not brought back, nor have you even sought for the lost. Verse 5, they were scattered for the lack of a shepherd. They were scattered for the lack of a godly king. Now my flock, verse 6, God is saying, my flock, my sheep, my people have wandered through all the, high, or all the mountains on every high hill. My flock, my people have been scattered over the surface of the earth and there was no one, no godly king, no righteous king to go and search and seek out the lost. Therefore, verse seven, you shepherds, you wicked kings of Israel, Hear the word of the Lord as I live, declares the Lord, surely because my flock has become a plunder. And my flock has become food for all the beasts of the field, for the lack of a godly shepherd, for the lack of a godly king. Verse 10, behold, I am against you, shepherds. And furthermore, he says, not only am I against the former wicked kings, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hold them accountable. He says in verse 10, I will demand my sheep. I will demand my people from them, and I will make them cease from feeding or shepherding the sheep so the shepherds will not feed them anymore. God has had enough. He is done with the wicked kings. And then here's where this passage 
turns in an amazing fashion. It turns from a word of woe, it turns from a word of warning into a passage and a word of wonder and worship. Notice this turn here in verse 11. God is saying, woe to you former shepherds, I will judge you, verses, uh, verses 17 through 20. I'm done with you. And notice now what he, notice now what he says at the bottom part of verse 10. He says, but I, notice the first person singular, this is God speaking. God is saying, I'm done with the former wicked kings. Here's the turn, here's the change. I am going to do this work. I will do it as the divine God. I will deliver my flock from their mouth so there will, be no, there will be not be food for them anymore. Verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself, I'm going to do it as God, he says. I will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. And how will he do it? Verse 12, just as a shepherd cares for his herd in the day in which he is amongst his scattered sheep, so too will I care for my sheep, meaning my people. And I will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. This is God speaking. God is going to do this work as God. Verse 13, he says, I will bring them out. Verse 14, I will feed them in good pasture. I will go out and I will search and seek and I will gather them, I will heal them, I will bind them up and I will give them good pasture and good watering. Verse 15, I will lead my flock, I will feed my flock and lead them to good rest. Verse 16, one of the most tender passages you will see in the Old Testament concerning God. I will seek for the lost. I will return or bring back the scattered. I will bind up the broken and I will strengthen the sick. This is God speaking. God is saying, I'm going to do this. I'm done with all the former wicked kings. I'm going to do their work. I'm going to do it. And then, and then he says how he's going to do it. Look down in verse 22 or 23. And then I will set over them one shepherd. What does he mean? One what? One king. I will set over them one shepherd, meaning one king, one king. And who is this king? My servant whom? David. <laughs> My servant David. Here's the problem. You see, by the writing of Ezekiel, David has been long dead. A couple hundred years he's been dead. Is God saying, I'm going to do all this work. I'm going to go out and search for the lost. I'm going to gather up those who have been scattered. I'm going to bind up the broken, heal the sick, and give them good pasture and good water, and I'm gonna do it by resurrecting David from the dead so that he can come back and rule my people again. Is he gonna do that? No. What does he mean then when he says, my servant David? Ah, this goes back to another beautiful, stunning promise that God makes to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We call this the covenant that God makes with David, or what's called the Davidic covenant. And if we remember that promise, it's a twofold promise. And there he says to David, 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 here is the twofold promise I'm going to give you. First is this. I will take your son, I will take someone from your seed, your loins, and I will place him on the throne. And he won't just merely be a, a ruler for a few days or a few months or a few years, but his rule will never end. It will be an eternal rule, an eternal kingdom. And second, he says this, and I will allow him to build my house, 
meaning build my kingdom. You take these twofold promises here that God is making in Ezekiel 34. One, I am going to do this as God. As God, I will search for my sheep. I will gather my sheep. I will, get, uh, I will bind them. I will heal them. I will hold them fast. And I'm going to do it, promise to, through my servant David, through the line of David and the seed of David. And at the end of this passage, you're going, how can this be? How, how can, how can, how can God carry this action out both as divine God and Davidic seed? How does that work? Ah, and then we remember the beginning portion of Matthew, don't we? You know that long genealogy that we all do our devotions from? That was a joke, you can laugh. In that genealogy, we, we remember two things. First, that Jesus is eternal God the Son, isn't he? That Jesus in his divine nature is eternally God the Son. He never had a beginning of days and he will never have an end of days. He is divine, fully God. And if we understand the New Testament rightly, right, Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1 says, about, says this about the divine nature of Christ. He is the creator of all things and he is the sustainer of this entire world. Gravity exists because Christ is sustaining it at this very moment. He is God the Son, fully God in all of his ways. And yet, at the incarnation, that event that you and I call and celebrate at Christmas time, what are we celebrating? We're celebrating the fact that God the Son added humanity to his divinity so that at the, at the act of the incarnation, he is the God-man, fully God and fully man. And from the genealogy in Matthew, we remember where his lineage comes in his human nature. What line is he from? He's from the from the line of David, isn't he? Take those two things together and that which we've learned in Ezekiel 34 and now when Jesus says to a group of people, uh, some of which are his enemies, Jewish leaders who hate his guts and he makes this bold declaration, John chapter 10, verse 11, he says this, I am the good shepherd. He's not saying I'm a literal shepherd with literal sheep. He's saying this, I am fully divine. And I'm also, in my human nature, from the line of David, I am the fulfillment of those two promises in Ezekiel 34. I am here to pronounce myself as the king of kings. And my rule starts and it will never have an end. And I'm going to build the house of God, the kingdom of God, one soul, one person, one sheep at a time. I am the good shepherd. I am both God and I am from the seed of David. And I am here to build the kingdom of God. And it starts now. It starts now. And now all the things that we remember from that passage in Ezekiel 34 where, 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 where God has said, I will seek them out. I will bind them up. I will bring them back. I will give them good pasture. How does Jesus Christ as the God-man, fully God, and after the incarnation, fully man, how does Jesus as the God-man do this? Look at the second part of verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. I am that divine and Davidic king. And the good shepherd lays down his life 
for the sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep. And verse 17, he says, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay my life down so that I might take it up again. Jesus is describing for us how he will accomplish all of this on behalf of the people of God. He says, I'm going to give up my life for my sheep, for my people, and I'm going to raise my life up again. Friends, he's, he's referencing what we call uh, the great exchange. On Calvary's cross, several things happen. Two things are these. One, that Jesus takes all the sins, all the sins of the sheep of God. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, it means at that moment at Calvary, Jesus Christ took your sins, my sins, our iniquity, and he placed them upon himself so that the one who did not sin became sin for us. And while all of the sheep of God place their sins, they're imputed to Jesus Christ on the cross, he then bears our penalty on that cross, doesn't he? That there he receives full Trinitarian wrath, wrath from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, poured out on the person of Christ. He takes the death of the penalty that should have been mine and yours, and he takes it upon himself. But that's not all. You see, in his earthly life, he was perfectly obedient to the timing of God the Father, the plans of God the Father, and the will of God the Father, so that as in his obedience, he earns righteousness that you and I could never earn because we are sinners, and he is not. And he takes that earned righteousness, and he imputes it and gives it to his people, so that as God the Father now looks at us through Jesus Christ, we are forgiven of our sin, our sins have been, and our, our, our wrath has been paid out by Christ, and we receive the righteousness of Christ. And in that, how would scripture define it? We've been healed. Of our greatest iniquities, of our great, we are forgiven and we are healed. We are righteous in Jesus Christ. And what's the result? What's the result? We look down in verses 27 and following. Jesus says this of those who believe in him. If you are the sheep of God this morning, this is true of you. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. Truth, what number one? If you are the sheep of God, you're forever known by Christ. You are known by Christ, and he knows you by name. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they know me. Friends, if you are a believer this morning, you are known by Jesus Christ. Truth two. 28 says, and I give eternal life to them. Friends, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are forever saved by Christ. You are forever known by Christ, and you are forever saved by Christ. He has taken us and he has uh, purchased a redemption and a deliverance that no one can take. How do we know this? Because the next verse, verse 29 says, uh, my father who has given them to me, I'll get back to this, is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So we are forever known by God, we are forever saved by God, and we are forever what? Kept by God. Friends, all of us will stumble, all of us in this life of sanctification. We will have ups, we will have downs, we will have hills, we will have valleys. We will have moments in our sin and our iniquity even after becoming believers where we say, God, how can you love a wretch like me? 
We are forever kept by God. You are forever kept by God. You are forever kept by God. And no one, no one is able to take you out of the Father's hand. Notice what else that verse says. My Father who has given them to me. Friends, you are forever not only known by God, you are forever chosen by God. Forever chosen by God. Forever known by God. Forever saved by God. Forever kept by God. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he's saying far more than I am a literal shepherd with literal sheep. He's saying, I am God the Son, fully divine, and I will do a work for the sheep of God, the people of God that only God can do. <laughs> Did you know that when you were lost, it wasn't you searching for God, but it was God searching you? Did you know that at that moment of salvation, it wasn't you saying, God, look what I've done. I've brought myself to your front door. I've done my part, now do yours. It was God calling us, searching for us, finding us. I will seek the lost. And friends, remember how broken we used to be and some of us still are. That was God saying, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest and I will take you to myself and I will hold you fast and I will bind you up and I will heal you of your wounds, of your iniquities, which is why heaven, that place for the believers where there is no more covenant curses, only covenant blessings, he says every tear will be removed. No more sickness, no more pain, no more sorrow. A little over a month and a half ago, I lost my dad. And even as I preached his funeral, and I looked down at that casket, that wasn't him, because I knew where he was. He was in glory with his Christ, with his heavenly Father. That gives us confidence as we go through this life. If we've been known by our great shepherd, called by our great shepherd, healed by our great shepherd, we're gonna be kept by our great shepherd. Friends, all of this for the people of God has several responses. One is this, it's worship, isn't it? When we realize what Christ does for us on our behalf as the great shepherd, response one is worship and praise. Response two is this, Today I recommit my life. I will bend my knee and say of you, Jesus, you are King of kings, you are Lord of lords, you are forever my God and you are forever my King and I will follow you all the days of my life. And because your purpose was to build your kingdom, may that be my task. May I too, by preaching and proclaiming the gospel to my family, to my neighbors, to, my, to the people that I work with and across the street and across the universe, may I take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world because that's how. Using fools like us with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God continues to build his kingdom one person, one soul, one sheep at a time. But there's another response seen here in Scripture. We go back to the two verses we brought at first. Friends, if when you hear the words, I am the good shepherd, if it means nothing to you, if you remain indifferent towards Christ, 
and you continue to do so with a hardened heart until the end of your days, then there is something that is said in verse 26 that is so horrific to me that sometimes I cringe as I read it. To those who, whose hearts remained hard against God, to those who view themselves not just merely indifferent against Christ, but as the enemies of Christ, the Pharisees asked the question, Jesus, if you, will, if you are the Son of God, tell us plainly. And he says, I have. There's a reason why you cannot hear and you cannot believe. Verse 26, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Friends, I do not want that to be said of me and I do not want it to be said of you. So today, today there's an opportunity. If you do not know the good shepherd as Lord and as Savior, make today that day. Make today that day where you bend your knee, you take your pride, and you say, today, Lord, you are mine. I give you and swear to you my life, my fealty, all of me for all of you. Today would be the day if you give your life in saving faith to Jesus Christ that not only for the first time can you sing in true worship, but it's a tune-up, it's a warm-up for the song that we will sing throughout the rest of eternity. You see, the book of Revelation says this. In Revelation chapter 5, there's a song in verse 9. And they sang to him a new song, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood. Men from every tongue, every tribe, every people, every nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Verse 11 says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the numbers of them were myriads upon myriads, thousands upon thousands, saying this with one voice, Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Good Shepherd. Worthy is the God-Man who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and blessing. And then everything, every created thing which is in heaven, under the earth, under the sea, and all the things upon them I heard saying to him who sits upon the throne and the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory, and here's the ruling part, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Friends, what is your response to the Good Shepherd this morning? Will you bow the knee? Will you forever say of Jesus Christ, you are my Lord, you are my God, you are my deliverer, my savior, my redeemer. You are my everything. Or will you stand as his enemy and face his wrath on that last day? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you humbled. Lord, we thank you for the truth that you have given to us in your word. We pray this morning that you have given us eyes to see and ears to hear. May the truth of your word come washing over us. May we respond to you in worship, in praise, in adoration, and obedience. And Lord, may we be fervent in the message of the gospel and take the good news of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, who laid his life down for the sheep. May we take that message to our family our loved ones, our co-workers across the world. And Lord, may you continue to build your kingdom. Lord, if there are any here in the hearing of my voice who need to give their life to Jesus Christ, may today be the day of their salvation.
and we will give you all of the glory. And we ask this in Christ's name. 